The scripture reading for today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. My name is Joe. I'm a member here at New Hope, and I'll be preaching God's word for us today from Philippians chapter 1. And so let's, uh, let's pray one more time and, uh, as we go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us here today. This is your body. We are your church. And as we hear uh, your truth today, that your truth, um, don't leave us alone, God. Change us. Change our hearts. That as we listen and as we hear, as we commune with you together as a church today, that we will not leave the same way that we came in and become a little bit more like you. So may your truth and your presence here be known. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was different. I had changed. I was 18 years old and I had joined and I enlisted in the military and it was at right when the war on terror was beginning and through basic training I remember they were basically indoctrinating us they were they were uh, the, the the trainers who were involved they told us who we were and we were now one we kind of didn't have names in the beginning no rank we were kind of the lowest of the low and we were called, again and again, for months on end, killers. And in a way, it was kind of a necessary change that we had to go under as civilians who were not used to this kind of stuff in order to fight these kind of battles. And then again and again, for months, we would just be called, we would be referred to as a killer. And even after basic training was done, we would actually refer to one another as killers. So instead of, hey buddy, hey pal, we're like, hey killer. And we would call each other killer. And after so many weeks and months of this, think about it, we were like teenagers. And we would start to really believe that. I started to forget who I was. I remember I would come home sometimes to visit and my family and friends who I grew up with, they knew me, and I would act different. I had a different look in my eyes, the way I carried myself. And I kind of had forgotten who I was, and they would say things like, you're different. 
I remember in one of our training schools, as we continued on, uh, there was a new commanding officer. His name was Chief Warrant Officer Azell, and I always remember him. I didn't know him very well, but as we got to see his life, we started to change. And in his welcome aboard briefing, he sat us all down, just like in a room like this. Everyone was sitting down. He went to the front of the stage, and as he was walking to the front, we were all looking at him. We knew he was our commanding officer, and he was like this big, buff, muscular dude. And we're like, oh, man, right? So he is the man. And we're just like kind of idolizing this guy because, you know, in this environment, it was like super macho and like it's just, uh, just hyper kind of, I don't know, it was like a frat almost. Uh, th that's the kind of ideal that we we're striving for. And we were expecting him to say the same things that we heard every other Marine say to us. You're a killer. We're, we're in war. And like you've got to be prepared for that. And we expected him to say that. And yet, when he got up to the stage and when he opened his mouth, came out like the most gentle voice ever. It's like, big buff dude. And he was like, super gentle. And he said this, remember who you are. Huh? said, don't forget where you came from. So he listened and he said, remember who you are because he said, before you put on this uniform, before you started earning these titles and accolades and started training, you're someone's son, you're someone's daughter. And he shared about himself, so I'm someone's son, I'm someone's Friend, I'm someone's brother, I'm someone's husband, I'm someone's father. Before I ever put on this uniform and long after I take this off, this uniform, this duty that we have is not who we are, is not who I am. And he said this, which woke me up. He said, you know, first and foremost, most importantly, above all these other things, I'm a Christian first. And that's who I really am. And so remember, as you go through your training, as you fulfill your duties, this is not who you really are. Remember who you are. Don't forget where you came from. And as a teenager, that really woke me up. Because I had forgotten who I was. I was searching for who I was in a way, but I had forgotten. And that's the struggle we all have, isn't it? We forget who we are. But those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians, who believe in Jesus, we can forget who we are in Christ. We also kind of don different uniforms and kind of different faces and images throughout our lives. We get influenced by outside voices assigning us and constantly labeling us. Our outside culture and society. We also struggle internally with our identity, with lies about God and ourselves. And we struggle to remember. We have to be reminded of who we are because we forget. I wonder what kind of uniform have, have you put on? Have you forgotten who you are? 
Can we really say in our life, and not just by our speech, but by our life, actually, above all of this, above any other activity that I'm involved in or title or kind of praise that I've gotten or even some kind of mean label, I'm a Christian first. In the letter to Philippians, Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church, and the church, they're facing both internal and external forces and pressures to compromise their faith. Meaning, there were so many pressures inside and outside that there was a real risk and tendency to forget who they were in Christ. And they, they started to resort to kind of old ways, caving in to societal pressures, and even be influenced by false gospels. That was a problem. And that's a problem that we also face today. They needed to be firm and remember who they were. So in the midst of all these competing voices, God calls us to remember who we are. Let's read that again in verse 27, Philippians 1, verse 27, the first half. This is what Apostle Paul writes. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a different translation, NLT, it gives us a little bit of, of a kind of different angle. And he writes this, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Did you catch that? It says citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. You must live as citizens of heaven. That's who you really are. That's your primary identity. You're a citizen of heaven first, above all. And we must live our lives in a way, in a manner that's worthy of the good news about Christ, about Jesus. So Paul's main message throughout this letter, and as we conclude chapter 1, is a sneak peek into the rest of the letter of Philippians. And one way to kind of think through the letter of Philippians is, remember who you are. You're a citizen of heaven. And the rest of the letter kind of details what that really means, what a citizen of heaven looks like and lives like and speaks like and carries themselves. So remember who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. So in this message, I want to kind of show us through God's word, how then, how can we remember that we are citizens of heaven first? How can we remember that? Because we're prone to forget. So how do we remember that we're citizens of heaven first? I'll give us three considerations through God's word. First, we remind one another. We remind one another of who we are in Christ. We do that together. Let's read the rest of verse 27. It says this, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, it's like he's saying, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together, striving together, right, for the faith, the gospel, the good news. So at first glance, this, this kind of seems like it's talking about integrity, isn't it? Because remember, there's a reason he's letting, that Paul is writing a letter to the church, because he's not there with them. So he's far apart from them and saying, listen, I'm not there with you. But whether I'm with you or not, like, you got to live out your faith. And so in a word, that kind of sounds like integrity, right? Integrity. So you've got to 
You've got to be like a real, genuine, authentic Christian, with or without me. But I want to kind of pull back and caution us there, because I think in contemporary American society and what we celebrate in American culture, uh, even integrity, a virtue like integrity, it tends to be over-individualized, doesn't it? Think about it, right? Integrity is like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do me, and you do you, right? So I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to follow my heart, and this is who I really am. You've got to accept it. And yeah, I will stay true to myself. I'm going to live and speak by my truth. And so we've heard these phrases, right? We, we hear this all the time. We hear this growing up. We hear this in movies and songs and children's books. I mean, this is a message that's been kind of reinforced again and again and again growing up in our culture and our country. And so at first glance, it's kind of about integrity. But when we wear our like American lens, right, if we put on our American identity first, we tend to over-individualize this notion of integrity. And we just think, as long as I do me, then I'm good. And you, you do you. You do you, boo-boo, right? It's just that you do you. So here's, here's this person, and it's not exactly about personal integrity, but it's about communal integrity, together. Look at this verse. Whenever you see the word you, right, especially in these New Testament epistles, you, it really means the plural, right, together. Y'all. Okay, y'all. So really, it should be for better understanding so that whether I come and see y'all or I'm absent, I may hear of y'all, that y'all are standing firm in one spirit. Right? Everyone say y'all. <laughs> right? It's y'all. And then so most of the New Testament, when you hear the word you, it's y'all. It's really y'all. It's us together. But again, careful, because in our society, we tend to just over-individualize it. We just think, oh, it's just me. He's talking to me. Oh my gosh, he's talking to me. He knows me. No, it's not just about us. It's about us collectively as a community, a church together. And it's for the gospel. That means, that means our faith is not lived on our own. Our faith in Christ as citizens of heaven is lived out in community as a church together. That's what he's saying. So remember, whether I'm with you or not, You'll have one another. Y'all, as a church, together, need to live out this faith and remember together that y'all are citizens of heaven. Uh, that's what Paul is writing. He's writing them to, to remind them. And remember, it's for the faith of the gospel. And what is the gospel? How, how have we encountered the gospel? To those of us who are Christians, how have we encountered the gospel? What is the impact of the gospel in our lives? It's nothing short of transformation, total life change. Think about the response to the gospel of Christ. It's actually repentance, isn't it? Repentance means I was going this way and I changed course. Now I'm going the other way to the Lord. I have changed my mind. I have been corrected. My trajectory is now different than what it was before. And think about it, especially, I think, in our society today, we tend to forget that. Because when it says, when we see 
standing firm in one spirit. We tend to interpret that, right, in our kind of society. I'm going to stand firm for what I believe in, and no one's going to tell me different. Right? That's, that's how we tend to interpret it. I'm not going to change my mind. Right? I'm not going to let anyone else influence me. I'm going to do me. But again, that's not the integrity that Paul is talking about. It's not this kind of stubborn willfulness that's insisting that I'm just me and that's it. I'm just going to do it my way. In fact, he's saying, no, y'all are citizens of heaven for the sake of the gospel and the impact of this gospel again and again, not just once in our lives, is continual change. Practically speaking, that means as a community, as a church, we're open to correction. We're open to being willing to be corrected. I thought this about God, but now I think this because I've learned more. And actually, what I was thinking, that, that I thought this was the Christian faith, but actually, as I've learned more and the Holy Spirit has been helping me with the aid and help and teaching of the church community, it's now a little different. And so it's a willingness and openness to continually change and be corrected and welcome that, even from one another. We should be a different person and a different Christian than we were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. In Christian community, as a church, we gently point one another to God's kindness and to the truth of the Word of God so that we're led to repentance and to continually change, change our minds and our hearts by the grace and help of God. That we're not the same as before. That's the good news. We're not the same. We're new. We're becoming more like Jesus. In fact, we should hear, and I hope we should hear. And I've heard this like maybe a couple times in my life. And it's like the highest compliment is, you've changed. You're more like Jesus. And that's a good change. So even more practically, how can we remind one another? How can we go about as a church together reminding one another who we are as citizens of heaven? I'll give us like two like pretty practical things. I, I hope they're practical. Uh, one, I, one image I want to leave with you is identify the spoiled fruit and put out the good fruit. All right? So identify the spoiled fruit and put out the good fruit. So I, I work in a grocery store. And you know what we do like a, for like from morning till night? As we have already stocked the groceries and it looks nice and people are shopping, guess what? Apples fall. Oops, you know? The onion rolls down the aisle. The can drops. The glass breaks. Things happen, right? Life happens. That's okay. So as workers, we're constantly picking up after kind of the bruised and kind of broken pieces of grocery and fruit. And we don't just put it back on the shelf, right? It's like, it's kind of, we don't do, I mean, uh, as a customer, we might, but as a worker, that's, our job is to actually take care of it. So constantly, morning through night, you know what we're doing all day? We're taking, like, spoiled fruit, right? We're looking at a piece of fruit, 
and we're learning to identify if it's good or not, right? Is it good enough to sell? And you know what we all, sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes we're like, yeah, that's, that's, that, but no one's going to buy that. But sometimes, if it's kind of like this borderline, you're like, huh, like, it's good for like banana bread, you know? It's like, I think people will buy it, right? And so you start asking one another as workers, yo, like, bro, like, would you, would you buy this? Like, you think this is good? <laughs> if you listen in our conversation, that's like a solid 20% of what we talk about. Yo, you think, would you buy, this is good? Like, would you buy this? Like, you know? And, you know, if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, I think so, but how about now? Absolutely not. This is just, this is garbage, right? And so we take, we identify the small fruit, we take it off the shelves, we donate it, we get rid of it, and then we put out the good fruit. We make sure we put out the good fruit. Paul writes another letter to the Galatians, and um, he identifies some fruits of the Spirit. And some of us might be familiar with this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Good fruits. These are fruits of the Spirit. There are other bad fruits he identifies, and yet, and he says, like, we need to be able, be able to tell, tell both apart. This is spoiled bad fruit. We need to take that out. Identify it, remove it. And this is good fruit. We need to put that out. And that's the thing that we consume and enjoy. So identify the spoiled fruit and put out the good fruit, because that is our identity marker. That's how we express and live out who we are as citizens of heaven together as a church. So I'll, I'll give us just, there's, there's a lot of fruits, so I'm just going to focus on one or two. So for example, the first one, love. What is the spoiled fruit version of love? Yes, it could be hate, but also I think indifference. You know how I can tell, at least for me, you know how you can tell if I really care about someone? I'll pay attention. I care. I'm not indifferent. If I don't care, I literally ignore that person. Does it make sense? Like that, I think, so it's not active hatred, but it's an indifference. It's like, I don't care. It's not my problem. Whatever. And so even whether it's for ourselves or together as a community, if you start talking and thinking and acting like that, sometimes, and it's kind of evident, you can say, hey, that's, that's a spoiled fruit of indifference. It's kind of cold-hearted. It's really distant. Like, I, think, I feel like you've just stopped caring. You're just kind of preserving yourself. Haven't really been like, I don't know, it's, it's, whatever this is, it's, not, it's the opposite of sacrificial giving and love. And so let's... Remind one of them, it's like, well, we noticed that. Can we love instead? Love like God has first loved us when we were undeserving, when he had every right to be indifferent. Let's love like our Savior did for us. Love graciously. Or maybe another one like uh, uh, peace. What's the opposite? What's the small fruit of peace? Something like divisiveness. Something like insisting that I'm better than you. And therefore, you don't deserve my forgiveness and mercy. Nah. But instead, 
if we recognize that, we start recognize that spoiled fruitedness in ourselves, even with one another, as we gather together, what we do is remind one another, hey, that's spoiled fruit. The blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who forgive, who put their first foot forward and reconcile. We're aiming to make whole again, not divide. So we identify the spoiled fruit and put out the good fruit. That's one way we could remind one another, right? Just a second way we could remind one another, you know how? Sing together. We sing together. That's one of the best ways that we could remind one another of who we are in Christ. We sing together. When we sing songs as a church, we get together like this, just we were like moments ago, early this afternoon. We sing songs of praise to God, thanksgiving, or even lament and just crying out to God, prayers, or even creeds, saying like, this is what we believe. Our singing has kind of two effects, okay? Like one is, it's definitely to God. We exalt God. It is a worship unto God. But do you know why we sing aloud together? It's to God, but it's for one another as well. It has a secondary benefit. It's for one another, isn't it? It's a form of kind of te- mutually teaching and reminding one another. Remember, this is who God is. This is who we are. Remember, this is the God who heals and restores so we could turn to him. And as we sing these words aloud to one another, that's what we're doing. We're reminding one another. We don't sing loud because God is hard of hearing, okay, right? That's not why we sing. So I can't hear you. That's not, why, that's not why we sing aloud. We sing aloud for one another's benefit. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've been just so down and just so discouraged, maybe just so sad, and I've been unable to sing. I, I just had to sit down and I just couldn't sing. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And it really took the brothers and sisters of Christ in a church singing around me. And I, I, I needed, I was leaning on other people to kind of sing out on my behalf. Because I just needed that. I needed that kind of encouraging support. Because I, I just couldn't bear to do it myself. And that happens when we sing together. And so let's sing together. That's why we sing it's to God, but really also for one another. And that's how we can remind one another. Remember, this is our God. He's so good and great and worthy. Remember, this is who we are too. Could you like turn to someone next to you nearby and say, I'm so blessed when you sing. Are you going to say it right now? Yeah. See, we, we, we can commune together, and we grow together as a church, together, right? But what grants us the ability? What really sets us apart? Because I don't know about you, but I've been part of groups and organizations and teams that are really tight-knit, really loving too. And they're not necessarily Christian by nature. And so what really is a distinguishing mark? What makes us a citizen of heaven, specifically, and not maybe just something else in general? If you look in verse 28, 
what sets us really apart is as we gather together in a community, as we live out this faith, we don't do it by our own ability. In fact, we cannot. We can rest assured that it is God who saves us. That it is God. In verse 28, it says this, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In a little bit more common language, in a different translation, it says this. I'll reread it. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. We're acknowledging here that there are enemies, real enemies in our lives. And here specifically, it's not just a general enemy or like a political enemy or just someone who just doesn't like you and is making your life miserable. I mean, yes, there are those enemies. But specifically, and throughout the rest of this letter, he's talking about enemies of the gospel. And these enemies can be found outside or even inside the church. He's saying like these enemies, they're basically trying to twist and compromise the gospel of Christ to make it something that it's not. Or to diminish it. Where it's like, hey, this is, this is who Jesus is. But the enemy, an enemy of the gospel might say like, yeah, but that's just a part of your life. You don't have to really pay attention to that. And instead, they might elevate something else, like a, another aspect of your life to be even greater than God. That's what an enemy of the gospel does. And so he's saying like, yes, we have enemies. We have enemies in our society around us. And even sometimes in the church who are mistaken and need correction and are preaching a false kind of gospel who are allowing us to forget who we are, citizens of heaven. These are, to be clear, when we hear this, again, it's not just people we disagree with, okay? And remember, if you're primarily a citizen of heaven first, then we interpret even this in that, through that lens. Meaning, I know many of us have like either immigrated here or lived other places, and I know like next week is July 4th and everything, but USA is not heaven, all right? Does it make sense? Like, we're not heaven. I know there's been some kind of narrative at some points in times where it's like, we're like a city on a hill, and like, we're like the most godly place ever. We're more blessed than everyone else, and we win in everything, even in blessedness, you know? And like, okay. Uh, again, that's kind of a contorted view of what the Christian faith is actually about and what the Bible says and doesn't say. But remember, even beyond national citizenship, before we're U.S. citizens, we're citizens of heaven. That means we can really let go of kind of the things that can rile us up. Whether it's different kind of opinions through like social views or political views or just different lifestyles. But if we're primarily citizens of heaven first, I pray that that will give us a discernment through the Spirit's help of really being able to tell, I think that's for the gospel, and that's actually not really the entire gospel, and that's like not the gospel at all. But even in that, we stand firm. We're not intimidated or pressured, or we don't, we don't cave in to the voices 
that can come from almost anywhere that tell us that the gospel is not enough. We don't cave into that. Instead, his exhortation is, we can rest assured that it is God who saves us. It's not up to us as a church community to say, we're just going to try harder, we're just going to be better than everyone else, and that's where we're going to be. That's actually not the message. In fact, as we'll we'll hear more next week, we ought to be the most humble people, like super humble, and not arrogant, and not insist that we're like superior in any way. But we can rest assured instead that it is God who has saved us. It is God who sent his son Jesus by his grace, out of nothing that we did to earn or deserve, to actually rescue us. And that actually he's continuing to save and rescue and sanctify us, to make us more like him, to continue to transform and change us. And one day it says that you're going to be saved, meaning one day we'll be perfectly saved and perfectly restored along with all of creation and those who are called by God. And that is something that God does himself. It's not up to us. So it's not up to us to try to take vengeance or to retaliate or hit back or, or try to get so like mean-spirited and competitive, Sorry, just kind of like anyone else, when we are faced with opposition. But we can rest assured that it is ultimately God who saves us. And in fact, even more radical perhaps is Jesus reminds and commands us we should love our enemies. It's not just standing firm on our own in a holy huddle, but we should ought to love our enemies. So we can rest assured that it is God who saves us. Yes, stand firm in the truth of the gospel, and also trust and be secure that it is the Lord who has saved us and will save us and continues to change and transform us. It is a privilege to have this kind of saving faith in Jesus. And it's a privilege to fully identify ourselves with him. We are citizens of heaven. We can remember that. That's who we are. That means that we're following Jesus. And we're also being made more like him. In other words, that means as we follow Jesus in the entirety of our lives, individual and corporate, we're also following Jesus in the entirety of his Lastly, Paul reminds us, how do we remember that we're citizens of heaven? We should also remember, not forget, that we share in Jesus' sufferings too. I know as a people, we love victory. We love to win. We love to come out on top. And Apostle Paul is reminding us that, yes, there is a promised glory, glorious destiny that we have as citizens of heaven. And yet that road to glory is marked with suffering. Let's read these last few verses. Verse 29 and 30. He writes this, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. A slightly different take on this in NLT. It says this, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. There's two privileges, knowing Jesus and also suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Remember, Paul 
he's writing this letter in prison. He is in chains in prison. He has suffered already, and he is suffering currently as he's trying to encourage this church. If you are familiar with the rest of the uh, letter of Philippians, he, pre he writes things like, you can be truly content in life through all circumstances in Christ. You can always rejoice, always give thanks, never complain. You can be generous even in your poverty. You can preach the gospel all the time. You can live out God's purposes for your life. And this sounds wonderful and amazing, and that's who we are as citizens of heaven. And he writes this as he is suffering and as he has suffered. He doesn't write this as someone who is comfortable or has already kind of accomplished everything and retired and just kind of doesn't have to worry about anything, but he's actually suffering. He's going through the very suffering, if not more almost, than the church that he's writing to. In other words, we remember who we are, that we're citizens of heaven, that we live out this faith and walk in Christ together. We can rest assured be confident that, yes, it is God who ultimately saves us, even when we cannot right every wrong in our lifetime. And it is marked with suffering. And the privilege that we have is knowing that we don't suffer alone. We're not above our master. That is actually the suffering servant, Jesus, who had to suffer for our sake. He showed us the way of being a true humble servant and the depth and the, the length and reach of God's lavish love by even being willing to suffer so that we may truly live. And we get to share in that. That's who Jesus is, and that's who we are. It has very little to do with retaliating or just biting back or standing firm by refusing to change. Those are not characteristic of a citizen of heaven. And sometimes we forget that. I forget that. I know I do. But that's why we're called to remind one another, to remember who we really are. We're citizens of heaven first. I'll just close with two, two kind of practical things we can try and how we share in Jesus' suffering too. One is, uh, remember the persecuted saints and pray for them. In a way, do we face persecution in this country? It's possible, kind of, to an extent. Relatively speaking, kind of mild, but we do. It can come in forms of discomfort. It can come in forms of belittling our faith, sidelining, being ostracized, being called crazy, being called bigoted, for holding firm to the gospel of Christ, being misunderstood. Yes, it can come in those forms. It often does. And when we're talking about this kind of suffering, to be clear, it's, we, there's a general human suffering in this broken life. I know many of us have faced things like loss and financial loss and relational brokenness. Illnesses of all kinds. And yes, there is suffering, and may the Lord, the God of all comforts, comfort you. And this suffering is a little bit more specific to suffering and being persecuted for our, our faith in Christ. And so let's remember that when we're not alone, that we're suffering just like Jesus did. But remember that there are other persecuted saints. 
All the persecuted saints who are being ripped from their homes, being disowned by their families, where their governments are doing nothing to protect them and their religious rights and freedoms. The people who are being imprisoned and killed for following Christ. So we can remember the persecuted saints. Pray for them. If you're not sure where to start, uh, there's a publication called Voice of the Martyrs. They even have like a mobile app, VOM, you could download it. And that's maybe a place to start if we're not really sure of who and how to pray for. So let's remember that, yes, there are persecuted saints. Sometimes we get persecuted too. And let's pray together. And lastly, one way that we could remember that uh, we could share in Jesus' suffering too, reminding, remembering who we are in Christ as we take communion together. It's one of the main ways throughout all of Christianity that we remember who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. It's one of the most blessed things. Do you remember this time last year, we weren't taking communion together, right? I mean, we're all still trying to figure out what to do with COVID and we're, we're like in lockdown mode. I remember sometime, I think it was in the late summer or fall, when, uh, when we first kind of had that first, like, communion, mini-communion service, and, you know, I remember I came to that. There were only, like, four of us there, you know, and it was outside by the tree, wherever that tree is. And I don't know if anyone saw, because, you know, we had our masks on and hoodies and whatever, but I was crying openly, because it had been months since we had shared that together. Months. And I have forgotten what a, what a privilege and, man, what an important reminder that we need to do this. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that we remember who Jesus is, what he has done, but also it indicates who we are, who we are in sharing Jesus' suffering. When the, his body was broken like the bread and his blood was spilled like the wine, we also identify with that as Christians, as citizens of heaven. We remember together by, doing, by breaking bread together regularly. We remember that our destiny is actually is supposed to be this, it kind of mimics a future amazing ultimate banquet feast that one day we'll share in. And so we can take communion together, we sing together, we help one another grow in holiness as we remember who we really are. We're citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven first, beloved, saved, and secure in the Lord. Uninvite us, um, can we stand together? We're going to go into a whole time of response, but I'd just like us to uh, um, just pray together, if, if I may. I'm going to invite us, um, maybe um, feel okay with this, uh, just kind of stretch our hands, like, just kind of to the people around you. Um, if you're close enough, maybe your family, or friend, you could, like, if you want to uh, hold hands, or you could do that. But for everyone, you could just kind of stretch our hands to just the people next to you, just as a sign of unity and togetherness. And let's, let's pray together, um, just as a church. 
reminding one another, remembering who we really are, that we're citizens of heaven, that it is this wonderful identity and privilege. That yes, at times we forget this, and yet God is gracious to remind us, to keep us, to hold us close, to turn us back, and say, remember who you are. Don't forget. And so, Lord, uh, we pray together as a church. We are your beloved. We are your children. We are your citizens. Lord, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we act in ways that are unbecoming of a citizen of heaven. And yet, oh Lord, thank you for your gracious patience and for your correction and reminders, God. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to cave in to the pressures all around us telling us that we're something that we're not. Lord, we pray for true heart change for our brothers and sisters next to us and all around us. We pray that you would continue to grow us and transform us as your church and body. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for not leaving us alone and being indifferent, but in love you came to us to change us and save us and continue to do it. We trust in you and in Jesus' name. Amen.